Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve here as lead pastor. And I've been working my way through a series on the Gospel of John. It is with some fear and trembling that I've tackled this one because I've really, the the Gospel of John has had a very special place in my heart. Um, But I want to make sure that I've gotten it right, that I have really not just interpreted what I believe is the truth out of these verses, but have applied them to my own heart. Because I I believe the Gospel of John, like all of Scripture, demands a response from us. It's not meant simply to produce head nodding and agreement, but a deep response of the heart. And this morning, we've come to a, a passage that I think is familiar to anybody who's been around the church for a while, But I think maybe being around the church for a while in some ways poses a handicap or a burden more than an advantage in some cases. And I think you'll see what I mean by that. So I want to take a fresh look at this phrase that gets thrown about quite a bit called being born again. Being born again. We're going to draw from John chapter 3 verses 1 through 15. And here's what the text says. Now, there was a man, a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. I want to acknowledge right at the onset that I'm tackling the Gospel of John in really large chunks. And there's no way I'm going to be able to do justice to every verse that comes across these passages I'm going to 
go through. We're going to blaze through the Gospel of John at a great speed. I've seen some preachers preaching calendars for the Gospel of John, and it goes four to five years. I did not want to spend four to five years dissecting every word, every nuance of the Gospel of John. So instead, I've opted to take a higher level view and look down from a great height and see what the big picture truths are that emerge out of the Gospel. And so we're going to, and this is a short passage, 15 verses is short compared to pretty soon we're going to do one that's 42 verses. Um, And there's no way I can possibly in 40, 45 minutes go through all that, nor would you want me to try because it would just be horrible for both of us. So today I want to look at this idea of Jesus' call for people to be born again and try to get a correct understanding and a compelling understanding of what that means. You know, the term born again, even though it was invented by Jesus, is actually a phrase that started to get um, more of a popularity in American culture in the late 60s, but it really came into national prominence when this man, President Jimmy Carter, actually used the phrase to describe himself during a national prayer breakfast. Now, how many of you are old enough to remember President Carter when he was actually president? You guys remember him being in office? Yeah, yeah, I remember. And I remember kind of being amazed that there was a guy in the White House who, even as a kid, I was like, is that allowed? Are you supposed to just say that kind of stuff out loud? Like he's so openly evangelical. And he used the phrase, I'm a born-again Christian. Now, I think he brought it into the spotlight. And when Jesus talked about that phrase, it is a helpful and necessary distinction. It's a call to reflection for those people who have been religious for a very long time, who have been around the things and the people and the house and the structures of God for years, but have not actually experienced something significant at a personal, deep level. And so we can't miss the irony that when Jesus first introduces this phrase, born again, he's challenging a man who could not possibly have been more serious about his faith. See, Nicodemus was a Pharisee and a member of the ruling Jewish council called the Sanhedrin, and that made him a member of the SEAL Team 6 of Judaism. Do you understand? This is not a guy who went to church. He won church. He won it. He played the game and got the gold medal. This is a guy whose religious pursuits just paled, just caused everybody else to look small. He got as far as you could go in being a Jew, a faithful follower of the living God of Israel. And yet to this man, who everyone in his society would have hands down said, Nicodemus is one of the very best of our religious people, Jesus points right at him and says, something profoundly missing in your experience, Nicodemus. You've been around the things of God for so long, but something truly essential is still missing from your life experience. And here's the thing. Those of us who have been in church for as long as we can remember, for some of us, there is a a nagging sense deep down in our hearts that this is true of us too. That I've been sitting in chairs like this one 
Since I was a kid, being made to be very quiet and listen carefully while the truths of the Bible were spoken from somebody to me, and I listened and I listened, and at times I laughed, I stayed awake, I even agreed, but something in me has always felt a little bit missing, numb to all of this. I mean, yeah, I appreciate it, I like it, I, there are days when I even get moved by it, but something fundamentally deep down inside of me is not stirred. It hasn't come alive, and I know that's true. So here's Nicodemus. And while most of his fellow Pharisees were openly disrespectful and hostile towards Jesus, some even said the only way he's performing these miracles is because he comes from Satan, and Satan is empowering his miracles. They were really hostile to him because they were the self-appointed guardians of Judaism. They believed that it was their role to guard the faith, and in fact, it really was. It was their role to protect faith in Israel from corruption. But what they didn't realize was that they were the very ones from whom Israel needed protecting. They had lost their way, and many of his fellow Pharisees were openly hostile to Jesus, but Nicodemus was not like this. It says that he came at night to Jesus. Now, people have made a big deal out of this, and I think there's some significance there, because later on when he's remembered again, he pops up again a couple times in John, and it says, yeah, Nicodemus, you know, the one who visited Jesus at night. So it seems to be significant. Why does anyone do something at night? Usually it's because under the cover of darkness, it's easier to move about undetected. And that, was, that would have been really important for Nicodemus because he was a Pharisee and a, a member of the Jewish ruling council. And Jesus was not exactly the most popular guy among the Jewish leadership. So to be openly seen um, talking with Jesus, asking him questions, would have been really dangerous for Nicodemus' standing as a member of the council. It would have been really dangerous for his public reputation. And the truth was, Nicodemus was interested in Jesus, but he wasn't yet committed to him. He was mildly curious, and so as most people do, and I don't want to I don't want to judge Nicodemus too harshly. I think most people who are taking their early first steps toward Jesus do so tentatively. That's why many people who are far from God and want to check it out don't go to a small church, right? You, you don't want to go to church with 20 members where the minute you walk in, the whole church turns and go, hello, you're new, what's your name? You're just like, can you all just leave me alone? I'm here to just listen. I'm not sure how I feel about all this. So you go to a church with thousands of members where no one has any clue whether this is your first time or your 20th year at the church. And you want to sit in relative safety because you haven't made up your mind yet. You're still checking it out. And so you want to have a little bit of buffer, some anonymity. And that's really what Nicodemus is doing. All his life, he had been religious. He had won that game. And yet, something inside him said, I I don't feel like this is everything that there is. And then he hears the teaching of Jesus And he watches Jesus practice supernatural things, signs and wonders, miracles. He watches the obvious love and compassion in Jesus pouring out over people who don't really deserve this kind of mercy. People who his society had thrown out as garbage. And Nicodemus sees Jesus and says, something is different. I can't just brush this guy aside. It's bothering me. He's not somebody 
I can just ignore because he makes me feel like there's something I see in him that I've been missing all my life. And so he comes at night, and he wants to talk to Jesus and learn a little bit more. And if we're being honest, I think that's the place where a lot of people really need to admit that they are, even though they've been coming to church for years. They've been curious, they've been drawn, but have never really bowed their knees and made this full commitment and had an experience where an encounter with the living God caused something dead inside of them to come to life. Now, what's interesting is, There's no record that Nicodemus asked Jesus any question. But it says that, all he says is, hey, you know, Rabbi, very respectful. He says, hey, listen, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who comes from God, meaning the stuff you say rings true to me. It stirs me in some way. And the things you've done would be impossible if God were not with you. But so far, all he's saying is, you're like Moses, you're like Abraham. You're one of these guys that God is with you. You're a special man, and God's favor rests on you. And he says, you know, there's no way you you would do any of these things if God were not smiling on you, were not with you and backing you up. And so what he's really saying is, you know, Jesus, I'm one of the leaders here, but I see something in you, young man. There's something special about you. I'm going to check you out. There's something there. And so he hasn't actually asked a question, but Jesus knows his heart. In fact, just a few verses earlier, it says in a haunting way, for Jesus knew what was in the heart of men. And he sees into Nicodemus' heart. And he immediately replies, it almost seems like a non sequitur. He says, very truly, I tell you, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Here's what Jesus is saying to him. You know, you know, you think you see me and the stuff I'm doing, the things I'm teaching, and you think you see something in me, but you don't really see at all. You see what anyone in an audience would see. You see what anyone with a pair of eyes and ears would see and hear, but you haven't truly seen anything. You approach me out of curiosity, out of a stirring in your heart, but you have no idea yet who you're standing in front of who you're talking to. You will one day, but right now, you have an inability to see truly who I am. And that's where I think a lot of people are in church. It's one of the reasons why it's so hard to stay awake during a sermon. It's not just because you're tired, and it's not just because I'm boring, even though both of those things may be very true on any given Sunday. But I don't think our inability to stay awake and track with the sermon is simply because I stayed up too late or this man does not know how to keep people awake. I think at the heart of it, some of it is this. The things being spoken about don't stir the depths of you because you're only hearing one level and the truly exciting level is lost on you. You know, when you don't have anyone in your life, You hear love songs on the radio all the time, and they're just like water off a duck's back. But then you meet someone, uh -uh. and now every song, you're like, oh, yeah. That line, I'm going to just, if I ever got a tattoo, I would tattoo that line on my arm. you, You pay attention. You hear it. It's like you're attuned to something. Everything stands out to you because there's more than one level of seeing and hearing. 
And what Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, you have rightly seen that the things that I say and the way I say them are different than the way you guys teach. You've rightly seen that it'd be impossible for me to do any of these signs and wonders if God were not enabling me, but that is nothing more than everybody else sees. You have yet to see truly who you're in front of. And so he gives him a couple things. He says, first, you have to be born again. If you want to see what's really happening here, if you want to know who I really am and what I could mean in your life, you cannot just come to me with eyes and ears of flesh. There is a new kind of being that you have to attain in order to see this kingdom truly. I want to do a little auditory experiment right now, okay? And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask all of you to close your eyes, okay? Close your eyes, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to play a number of tones, and if you can hear the tone, I want you to raise your hand, okay? So close your eyes, and I want, to, I want you to tell me if you could hear this. Okay. All right, keep your eyes closed. Come on, some of you are cheating now. Come on, eyes closed. Tell me, keep your, keep your hands raised if you heard that. Now, keep your hands raised if you can hear this, and put them down if you can't. Okay, sorry about that. Some of you really heard that. Now, keep your hands raised if you can hear this. Okay, so some of you have put your hands on. Now, keep your hands raised if you can hear this. Interesting. Okay. That last frequency was 17,400 hertz, or 17.4 kilohertz. It's a frequency that almost no one more than 18 years old can hear. <laughs> Mia Song, you have the distinction of being the last person who could hear that sound at harvest. But I noticed that as we went from tone to tone, the number of hands that were raised decreased. And that's because at some point, no matter how carefully you're listening, something changes fundamentally in your ear structure so that you cannot perceive certain frequencies as you age. The reason I find that so fascinating, so relevant here, is that there are certain kinds of hearing that are not a function of desire or attentiveness or effort. You could try really hard at my age of 50 to hear that 17.4 kilohertz test tone, but try as I might, as much as I'm going, oh, I think I, wait, I'm not hearing anything. I'm just pretending. In fact, I even toyed with the idea of playing nothing and seeing who, who's lying. <laughs> but, <laughs> but here's the thing. Some stores, some stores will actually play 17.4 kilohertz constantly outside their store to prevent teenagers from loitering <laughs> outside. The teenagers stand on there, why do I have such a headache? I, let's move. And, and the store owner is like, mm-hmm, science wins again. I find it fascinating because it's not about wanting to or trying to. There's a point at which you're just not able to hear. You're just not able. It's like something fundamentally is missing in you so that try as you might, no matter how many times it's played for you again and again, you won't hear what you cannot hear. And that's at the heart of what Jesus is saying. 
He's saying that there is a level of this whole reality, this kingdom of God, that everyone can see. It's like the 800, killer, 800 hertz tone. If you are alive and not deaf, every human being with a pulse can hear it. Okay, Every human being. If you're not deaf, you can hear 800 hertz. And if you can't, you're not with us anymore. You are a ghost. You understand? So at some level, there's just anybody with blood flowing through their veins can experience this level of things. But as you go up to these certain frequencies, it's no longer possible to hear. And what Jesus is saying is there's a level to this kingdom which is not available to those who are only born of the flesh. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh. But the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. See, there's a level of church that everyone can perceive. You're doing it right now, right? You feel the chair under your butt. You feel the coffee in your bladder. You hear the words I'm saying. You heard the songs. Everything that happens here at a sensory level, you can perceive. But there's another level of things happening here, which some of us cannot see, cannot enter into. And that's because it is not something that is grasped by the five senses. It is something that is grasped by the spirit deep inside of us. I understand this to be very true. It's part of my own testimony. I grew up in church, and the truth of Scripture was taught to me nonstop, several times a week, for almost my entire earthly life. My parents very faithfully spoke the truth to us at home. I went to church and got it spoken to me at home, and I heard pretty much every word of it. I may not seem very smart, but I'm pretty attentive, and I miss very little. And so I'm listening, I'm listening, I'm listening. And sometimes I'm really keen to hear. I'm interested in what a person's saying. And I hear all of it through my ears. I see it through my eyes. But I completely miss the gospel for over 16 years of my life. Intellectually, I understood what it meant. In fact, I accepted Jesus 30 times or so as an elementary school student. But what I was doing was hearing the presentation of a mechanism, a process, and then following through with it. I knew this. I heard the description of hell. I don't want to go there. I heard the description of heaven. Sounds way, way better than hell. Who's with me? If you're going to talk about heaven or hell, what kind of dummy was that? Give me hell. Stupid. So I'm hearing heaven or hell, and I'm thinking way better to go to heaven And how does it work? You're supposed to say these things. So I said it. And then the next week, I had done a few bad things. I didn't feel like it took, so I'm like, uh, excuse me, Sunday school teacher from Moody Bible Institute, could you lead me in that thing again? I don't think it took. And I just did it again and again and again and again. But here's the truth. I was perceiving the gospel at a fleshly level, but I couldn't receive it yet at a spiritual level. It wasn't because I'm dumb and I didn't understand how it worked. I just was not ready to truly hear it. I wasn't ready to see in Jesus who he really was or to see in myself who I really was. 
It wasn't because I wasn't reflective. It wasn't because I hadn't tried or hadn't gone to church. It was that something fundamental inside of me, deep down, inaccessible to me, but accessible only to God, had not yet happened in my life. And then one day in August of 1984, you've heard me say this so many times, it's my favorite story. It's a story when Jesus found me. And ironically, I told you this before, I heard the gospel for the first time when it was spoken by the least capable communicator who ever preached in the name of God. This man, without a doubt, had to be the least talented speaker I have ever heard. And yet, that was the first time I heard the gospel. And I can't explain that. Because I heard it so many times presented eloquently, compellingly, and nothing in my heart stirred. And then one day, when I should have been asleep, my heart seized up and I couldn't stop listening. And then I saw myself and I could not stop weeping. And it was as if some thick layer of concrete over my heart cracked into pieces and I saw him and I saw me and I couldn't push it away anymore. It's like floodwaters washing over me, and I was totally compelled. That day, August of 1984, 34 years ago, changed my life forever. I have never been the same since that day. And I had no control over that. I can't explain it. There's something supernatural as if a thing that was once dead inside of me suddenly came to life and I was hearing things. I remember watching a video of a person who had a special hearing aid made. This person had some congenital deafness, could not hear for all their life. And then one day they put some device attached to an electrode, went into their brain. And I watched the video as they heard their loved one's voice for the first time. And the look in their eyes was such a treasure. I could watch that video over and over. It's amazing to watch someone's eyes on as this thing which they imagined all their lives, they finally hear. That's at the heart of what it is to be born again. It isn't that you're being schooled in a theory. You're learning a way of life or a set of beliefs, but something is happening to us. That's really what being born again is. It says that God adopted us through his love. That means he declared us to be his children. But it also says that we are born once again as well. That's not just something, a change of status. It's a change of our very being. What does it mean to be born again? Jesus says, here's how it works. You have to be born of water and the Spirit. There's a lot of debate on how to interpret this verse. A lot of people see in the water a reference to Christian baptism, but that would be a little weird because at the time John was writing this, Christian baptism was not practiced widely. There was John the Baptist's baptism, a baptism of repentance that Jews were already familiar with. But Christian baptism as an inauguration or initiation into the Christian faith wasn't practiced yet. So it's unlikely that some um, ordinance like, like baptism was what John had in mind. In fact, to understand and interpret this statement properly, we also have to pair it with Jesus' rebuke of Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus is going, what do you mean born again? And I don't know if he's being sarcastic or intentionally obtuse, but he's like, I'm old. I can't go back inside my mom's room at this size and at this age and come back. And yeah, that's true, but that's kind of a ridiculous reply. Like, that's all you got, Nico? 
you, you, I can't go back to my mom. Can't you tell I'm talking about something deeper than that? And then he looks at him and goes, aren't you like an expert in this? Are you not an expert in everything God has taught his people from the beginning? And yet, do you not understand? And that rebuke tells us that what he was missing was available to him in the Old Testament. In the scriptures of the Jews, which we now call the Old Testament, the answer lies there somewhere. It's available. In other words, he's saying to Nicodemus, you should understand what I'm talking about when I talk about this rebirth, especially when I use the images of water and the spirit. And in no place do these two elements come together more clearly than in Ezekiel chapter 36. Look at these, two, these three verses. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Here's what God says to Israel in the midst of their sinful rebellion. He says this to the prophet Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What God saw was that his commands, his laws were a terrible burden to his people because they had hearts of stone. They knew what God wanted. They just didn't want what God wanted. And so if they wanted the blessings and benefits of God, they would try to toe the line and obey what God commanded, but their hearts weren't in it. And so all the time, it was a fight. It was a struggle. It's sort of like when you want to do something in your free time, and your parents don't want you to do that thing in your free time, and you can't wait to go to college so that in your free time, you could do that thing all day long with no interruptions. It's because you don't want what they want. And so their authority, their commands are a burden to you because you want different things. And if you want food, if you want use of the car, if you want a little money, you better follow what they're saying. But it's constantly a struggle, isn't it? It's constantly a struggle. It feels like a fight every day. I don't want to read just for fun. There's no fun in reading. I did all my homework. Why can't I just... You know that feeling. And we adults feel like that all the time. All right, fine. I'll do it, but my heart's not in it. It's because the heart in us doesn't want the things of God yet. He says, I can't just keep telling you what I want and what's going to happen if you don't do it. What's needed most fundamentally is a deep change in you so that rather than just hearing and being warned, you begin to want what God wants. Something deep inside of you, changes. And until that happens, you will aggressively sleep through every sermon. You will laugh at every rebuke, every correction, every warning. None of this will be interesting to you. It will all seem like foolishness. It's not because you're a bad person. It's because spiritually, there isn't life yet in your soul. It's not possible to be moved by a love song until you fall in love. I guess poets feel that way. There's no one, but just the idea of love is lovely to them. But normal people, (laughs) you're not moved by love songs unless you're in love. 
And that's the way it is with the things of God. I think Pastor John Piper says it really well. What happens in the new birth is not the improvement of your old human nature, but the creation of a new human nature, a nature that is really you and is forgiven and cleansed, and a nature that is really new and is being formed in you by the indwelling Spirit of God. What is he saying? He's saying that when God causes you to be born again, he doesn't, it's not like, um, what is that movie, Invasion of the... Body snatchers, that's it, yeah. Where the pod people just, they, you look like you, but you're not you anymore. It's not like an alien invasion where they take over your body. You are still you, but fundamentally, profoundly different. You are cleansed. You are made clean in the sight of God through what Jesus does. And then something new, things you weren't able to do, to see, to hear. Places you weren't able to go in your spirit, you are able to have access to now. Things are exciting to you that were once so deadly boring to you. You find yourself compelled. You have ambitions, goals that you never had before because something inside of you has been made new. It's not just an improvement or remodeling of what was there. It is a replacement at some core level of what makes you you. The theologians call it regeneration. It's like a dead thing being made alive again. And where does this come from? What is the source of this new birth? Well, just think about it. The very language, the grammar of it is passive. You are born. You don't born yourself, do you? How many of you are like, I'm going to just be a person. And you just came out of your mom. You're like, I'm going to just be alive. Anyone just will yourself into existence through your mom's womb? Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. We didn't really have a participatory role in our first birth. One day you're like, hey, it's all right. It's so bright out here. It's cold. It's a lot of pain. People aren't that nice. And haven't you ever said to yourself or to God, I never asked to be born. It wasn't like I decided I want this. Here I am. One day I just woke up conscious and doggone it, here I am. Now I've got to finish this whole thing. So it's not like we had a say in our first birth. It just was something done to us. You were born. And the second birth is just like that. It isn't like Jesus is saying to people, to Nicodemus or to us, you go and be born again now. Go ahead. You get out there and you born yourself again. What he's saying is profoundly at the heart of it. It's the role of God to give birth to your spirit. It isn't because you said the right words or heard the right lesson, went to the right church, that all this happens. You can be indoctrinated, you can be enculturated, but you cannot be made alive when you are dead apart from the will and the power of God in your life. And that's the missing ingredient for a lot of us. It's why we struggle so much to have any real desire for the things of God. Truth be told, we are just waiting for a situation in our lives when we're finally free of all those who hem us in so that finally, without molestation, we could just be and do what we really want. Apart from God, we cannot experience this new birth. 
Remember earlier in the, the Gospel of John, in the prologue, in chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, John writes these words. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. It is his to give. We cannot storm the gates and demand it of him. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. In other words, we cannot initiate this new birth simply by our own efforts. God has to do something to touch the depth of your heart. I know you have tried mightily in the past to care about these things. You see that your parents, it's really important to them. You see that your wife, your husband, your friends, it's really important to them that you are into this. So you mightily put forth effort. I will get into it. I will try. I will listen. I will even journal, take notes, all of it. But unless God touches you, you will with folded arms endure Christianity until you die. Something inside of you has to come alive and that cannot happen apart from the mercy and power and presence of God. Jesus uses a curious illustration to make this point. He talks about the wind. If you know anything about the wind, you know that wind, you could hear it, but it's invisible, right? The only way to see the wind is to see the things the wind is blowing and moving. That's why if, you, if any of you have that little streamer or a piece of, I have this in my office, a piece of tissue taped to the air vents, because I don't like the heat, and some days I'm like, is that AC even working? And you stare at the vent. How many of you can see air coming out of a vent just with a naked eye? Yeah, you can't. Don't even pretend. So you put a piece of tissue, you tape it up there, so that when the thing is fluttering, air is coming. The only way to see the wind is to see what the wind moves. So even though you can't control it, even though you can't see it, when the wind touches something, it is unmistakable in its effect. I believe it's the same way when, when the Holy Spirit of God, when the living person of Jesus inhabits a person, touches them, causes them to be born again, it's not like just their habits or their lifestyle change. You see it. It's unmistakable. Something has changed in the core of that person. It's not just better habits, better morals, but something that was dead once is coming to life. It's like you don't recognize the person anymore. They're excited by things they were dead to before. They set goals in places that they didn't care about. They were apathetic before. They're awake and laughing at things that put them to sleep before. Do you ever see a guy who is too cool for school and then he falls in love and he's giggling all the time? Oh man, I love it. You're like, what happened to you? She happened to me. It's just how it is. You could be so cool till you fall off, then all decorum goes out the window. You are just a different person. Now, I don't want, I want to be careful not to equate being born again to falling in love. There are parallels, but you get the point. It's unmistakable when God causes someone who is spiritually dead to come to life. You can try to fake it so people get off your back. You can even try to fake it because it matters to you. You want to get it, but you cannot fake it till you make it with this. It is not a new birth available to you by effort or desire alone. It is something that we must come to God 
throwing ourselves at his mercy and saying, I cannot make myself come to life in my spirit. You must do that for me. And if you've already had that experience, but there's someone in your life you love, stop yelling at them, lecturing them, dragging them from meeting to meeting. Pray with all your heart that the God who puts people to life will cause life to spring forth from his spirit in them. If that doesn't happen, it won't matter how many meetings and gatherings and services you drag them to, how many times you happen to be playing just that sermon in the car when you're driving them. Oh, how did this come on? Hmm. Uh, Could you pause in our conversation for a second? I just want to hear this. (laughs) Really, you just want them to hear this. You can't play those games forever. You cannot manipulate someone into the kingdom. It is a work of God, and the most loving and faithful thing we can do is fall on our faces and cry out to God, who alone saves people, and say, save the one I love. They are dead inside. It's not just about their habits or the morals. It is that there is death in their spirit, and I want to see life. When ancient sailors tried to navigate the oceans, they absolutely depended on the wind. And if their sails were open and the wind was blowing, they could cross oceans and go from continent to continent. But if the wind ever died, those sailors were in terrible danger. Yes, they could work against the ocean pulling on the oars, but you can only go so far and so fast on human power. When the wind doesn't blow, that ship will be dead in the water eventually. And when I say dead in the water, I mean it literally. Those sailors will be dead floating on the water. They can't get where they're going without the wind. Being saved is the same way. You can't earn a degree in Christianity by attending church school for all your life. It is not a thing that happens as a result of knowledge alone. But it is something which God does deep inside, and to get it, we must cry out to him in dependence and desperation, the way sailors in the doldrums cry out to God for a breeze. John Piper was really helpful to me this week as I was trying to understand this and um, grasp the big ideas, and he offers a few tests to gauge whether you or someone else is truly born again. Now, I don't know if you grew up, maybe some of you young ladies, Vogue or Mademoiselle or something, there are all those little tests. Uh, Here's a test to see if he really is into you, and there's 10 things. I I am a little skeptical about tests like this, because I'm not really sure with a multiple choice thing you can really assess anything this important. But the spirit of these tests are simply this. uh, John Piper takes certain truths of scripture that the Bible, God himself says, if you have this new life in you, if you have this, not just an indoctrination or an enculturation, but if something has come alive in you that was dead, these are the signs you'll see. He teaches that in the Bible. And so John Piper has taken these scriptures and said, well, if that's true, then just ask yourself, not in a spirit of condemnation or judgment, but the way your doctor was said, hey, does this hurt? Now, what do you gain by lying to the doctor? No, it feels great. You might die. (laughs) 
Because that might be something he needs to know to help you. What's the point of lying about that? It's not a test to go, you're injured, you idiot. It's a test to say, you might be hurt. I want to heal you. There might be something really wrong with you, which can be fixed if you will acknowledge before God, the great healer, that you are in need. So the spirit of these tests is not to judge anyone. It is to ask yourself, are these things true of me? Do they indicate that I don't, it's not that I just learned how to be a Christian, but I am truly born once again. I'll run through them quickly and then I'll close. The first scripture is Romans 8, 7 to 8. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh, in other words, can only hear 800 hertz, cannot please God. Meaning if the only level which you interact with the kingdom of God is what the five senses make available to you, you haven't been born again, then you will be hostile to God and to the commands of God. So a test is, do you have a submissive or a hostile spirit towards what God wants? When God says a thing, do you find yourself resenting it or do you find yourself drawn towards it? Yes, if that's what he wants, it is what I want. Help me, God. I'm weak in this, but I want your standard for my life, not mine. I want to be pleasing to you. I don't want to come to you making demands of you. I want to come pleasing you. So how does your mind work? What governs your mind? And what is your spirit like towards the things that God wants? Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 12.3 Therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So in your deep heart of hearts, what is your attitude towards Jesus, the Son of God? Now, maybe you don't come right out and say, you know, Jesus, be cursed. Most people are too superstitious to say anything that irresponsible. But can you honestly say that he is the one whose guidance and direction you consistently seek and submit to? That's what Lord means. Not just that I'm a big fan of that he saved me, but that he orders my life. The things I do are explained because they are what he wants from me. I do what he tells me. In fact, I know what he wants because I'm asking him all the time. I I have friends in this church who share stories, testimonies, how once they only lived for what they wanted. That's the only thing they knew, but then strangely something happens and they find themselves always asking God, what do you want? And it's such an exciting, weird new experience because they never cared about that before. And suddenly they care. And suddenly they're obsessed with doing what God wants. So lordship is another test of being born again. Can you honestly say that your life is explained by Jesus being the undisputed master over everything that you do. I'm not saying you'll never have weak moments or failures. We're not talking about 100% or expelled. But you understand, are these the trends that mark and describe your life? 
Here's another one, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Are you attracted to the things of God? Or do they seem silly and unattractive compared to other things in the world? Now, I'll be honest with you. If you were to tell me, hey, would you like to attend a lecture on um, superlapsarianism or would you like to watch the newest Avengers movie, I'd have a bit of a conflict in my spirit. Because certain things are just fun. I'm not talking about whether you can recognize fun and what's important or necessary, but are you drawn, are you attracted to the things of God? Are there times when during a sermon, it's not like you just laughed or you found it interesting, but as the word was spoken, something in you kind of jumped a little bit. Oh, that's really right. I'm drawn to this. I'm pulled in that direction. Or, why would anyone think that's okay? Why would anyone want to live that way? I I feel no pull towards what this person is describing. And let me give you one last test. First John 4, 7, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Do you have a growing love for people in your heart? I'm not just talking about the people you want to love. But even those that are hard to love, do you find that over the course of your life, the capacity to love your fellow human being is growing? We all have people we like. We all have people we don't like. One of the marks of a new birth is that we grow day by day in the capacity to love people around us, regardless of who they are, what they believe, what they stand for, how they behave. Something divine touches us. And when we look at our our fellow person, our fellow human being, what we feel is a growing love. I don't know who's playing the keyboard, but if you would just start to make your way up, praise him, just make your way up. I'm going to land this plane. So I want to return to the guy we started with as we close the sermon. This guy, Nicodemus. I've been calling him Nico all week. I don't know why I'm doing that, but... In my mind, it just makes him feel more like a person because I don't know anyone named Nicodemus. But Nico or Nick sounds like someone I might know. So what, what happened to Nick? Nick O. Demas. I like to call him the Irish Pharisee, right? Nick O. Demas. This guy who approaches Jesus under the cover of night, more afraid of his reputation than what he might find if Jesus turns out to be who he suspects. Well, that night, Jesus says some pretty important things to him, and yet he's not moved. Nicodemus pops up again in John chapter 7 when the Pharisees are trying to arrest Jesus, and he speaks up kind of in the spirit of just legal justice. He goes, oh, are we the kind of people now who just try and convict people without a fair hearing? So he's speaking up sympathetically for Jesus, but as yet it's clear he hasn't committed his heart to Jesus. So for Nicodemus, this tentative slow walk towards God, towards salvation, was a journey. 
But then he pops up in the weirdest place again later in John chapter 19. And I think it's amazing how this guy's story, so tentative at first, wraps up. This is after Jesus has been crucified. And his clearly dead body, pierced and bleeding, lies on the ground, now abandoned by the soldiers to Jesus' loved ones to take care of the corpse. And it says, Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders. This guy who all his life had been an undercover Christian, still managing his public reputation. When he sees Jesus dead, he no longer can hide who he is. And he outs himself and he asks Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. And look who else is with him. With him came the other secret believer, Nicodemus, the man, his forever, who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so, because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two men of great prominence in their society who had kept their faith very much a secret, have the privilege now of preparing and laying to rest the body of Jesus before he would step out of that tomb and change human history forever. For some of us, we need to be around the things of God and the people of God for a very long time before God finally catches up to us and takes that dead spirit in us and brings it to life. I used to take it personally when someone was rebellious, sarcastic, defiant. I used to take it personally when people fell asleep while I, the great preacher, was preaching. I don't take it personally anymore. What I see is they have not yet been touched in the way we all must be touched in order to see and to enter into this kingdom of God. It is a work only God can do. And so each time I see that, I feel my heart led to pray. It is not yet their time, but it's coming. God, please touch the depth of them. And where there is only deadness, stir up life. Would you join me in praying that for yourself if that is where you are? And if that business has already been wonderfully done by the Lord, would you join in praying for people you love who are dead in their soul? and need to be made alive. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.